Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. In our fifth week of our series in Genesis, Chris unpacks a section of the Bible that can really sound a little unusual, but it's also a section where we clearly see the far-reaching impact of how we choose to live. Let's go to Chris. Welcome back to our series, In the Beginning, where we're going through the book of Genesis, and we are in week five of a series that will probably be somewhere between 45 and 50 weeks, so keep coming back. If you've missed the uh, first part of this series, you can always go back and watch it online, but the reason we're doing this series is because the story that we're, we're living determines how we live. It determines the quality of our life, the direction of our life, how our relationships look, all of that. Origin stories matter, and this one matters very, very significantly. Again, go back and watch. But what we have learned in week one of this is that we're not an accident. We were created on purpose, with a purpose, by God. He designed all of this. And and because of that, your life has significant meaning. You have purpose. There's a reason for you and a design for you as well. Week two, we learned that we were created at the top of that list of purpose. At the top of that list is to be in a relationship with God, to be connected with him uh, in an ongoing relationship. And then week three, we learned that we blew that relationship. We, we, we really torpedoed it with something called sin. And that, that we chose to disobey God and walk away from him as a race, as the human race. And in doing so, messed everything up. And we allowed sin into our world, kind of like opening Pandora's box. It created this mess that just spread throughout the whole human race and throughout the whole world. And we wrestled with the question, why would God even allow that to be a possibility? Why wouldn't he just make it so that we couldn't screw up, so that we couldn't choose to walk away from him? And the answer to that question is because it goes back to week two. We were created to be in a relationship with him. We were created to be loved by him and to love him. And love has to be a choice. Without a, without a choice, it's not love. It's, it's, it's robotic. It's, it's just something we're forced to do. And so God built into the design the ability for us to choose him or not. And we chose very poorly. Uh, last week, we talked about how the impact of, of that sin spread throughout uh, society. And, and we looked at the line of Cain, who chose sin over and over again, and the line of Seth, who um, at least some of his offspring chose to follow God. And we see this emerging uh, two groups of people, uh, God followers and sin wallowers. And what we'll see this week in in the first part of chapter six, is that the uh, sin spreads and spreads even into the line of Seth, and the God followers are very few by the time we get to this point in history. So if you will turn to Genesis chapter six, we're going to start at the very beginning here in just a minute. It's at the beginning of the Bible, six chapters in. And, And I just need to say on the front end of this message, this is probably one of the most bizarre passages we're going to see in all of the Bible. I mean, like, if anybody else would like to preach this, I I would welcome you up to do so now, because this is really weird. Um, It's going to leave us with more questions than answers. A lot of the, the aspects of this passage have been debated for thousands of years with no real clear conclusion. And you could literally spend days of your life researching this, trying to figure this out and never come to a clear conclusion either. 
Is that encouraging? So if you're new this week, let me encourage you to come back next week and don't form your opinion based on what you're hearing today about, about our church. Other than this, and I will say this, we don't shy away from the difficult text in the scripture. Like we believe that the Bible is the word of God and everything that's in there is in there for a reason. And even the parts that we struggle to understand or we don't have enough information information to completely put all the pieces together, we'll still wrestle our way through those because it's the word of God. And there's usually something in there, I'd say always something in there for us to learn along the way. All right, with that said, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. All right, so we start off with, we have got a group of beings called the sons of God, not super clear on who they are or what they are, um, and then the sons of, of human beings, or the daughters of human beings, and, and they're making offspring together. And then in verse 4, it says, the Nephilim, or Nephilim, depending on, on how you pronounce it, these, these uh, end up being the offspring of the sons of God and the sons, or the daughters of, of man. Uh, and they're kind of the, the heroes of their culture. They're, there's an indication that they're, they're larger, maybe on the, the giant side of things. There's something different about them. Uh, and it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. So they were and there's something about these, these people that is, or, or these creatures that is, that is different. Um, they are the heroes of the culture, men of renown. Now, in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Does anybody have any questions? Hey, I got nothing but questions, right? I mean, last week I talked about um, the, you know, there are things that we're covering such a huge swath of, of history with just a few pages of text that there are holes, like there are things that we just don't know or understand. We talked about the fact that the world looked different before the flood, that people lived longer. There were other things going on that we don't have a place for uh, in, in the world that we live in. Today, things were different then. We've got a ton of questions in this passage. And, uh, and so let's talk about what we do know for sure. Let's start there, and then we'll talk about what we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that over the course of, from the first humans to this point, 
And, and, and last week I said the first three chapters or the first five chapters were about a thousand years. Well, it's somewhere between to, to the sixth chapter, we're somewhere between a thousand and sixteen hundred years. There's debate about that, but somewhere in there. There was huge population growth, lots of people in the world. Well, we've got uh, something called the sons of God who thought the daughters of humans were hot and wanted to have sex with them and did. And they made babies who grew up to be something other than human, but kind of a hybrid giant superhero kind of thing. Hmm. Are you sure you don't want to teach this? Because I, I, I don't know. Okay, so that's what we know for sure. What we don't know for sure is who the sons of God are. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of theories about this. There's four main theories that people have in regards to who the sons of God are. The first is that they were um, the, the godly line of Seth. So Seth was, was Cain's brother. He chose to follow God. His children followed God to some, some degree, and that they had chosen, they were called the sons of God because they were, you know, they had chose to follow God. And then as they married these ungodly women, they became corrupted. And that's why by the time we get to Noah, there are eight people who are still following God. And so they somehow lost their, their godly family line because they were led astray by these, these loose women. They will do that to you. All right, the second theory is this, that it was demon-possessed men because there was something kind of supernatural or different about the, uh, the, their, their offspring. And so maybe there was some kind of demon-possessed sex going on and they were having, um, they were having these babies that were different and, and, and there was that theory. Uh, another theory is that it was angels. They were, they were uh, reproducing with angels. And, and, and a, a good argument for this is that when we see this term, the sons of God show up in other places, it's referring to angels. In Job 1.6, it says, one day the angels or the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Same thing in Job chapter 2, verse 1, it says, on another day, the angels or the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. So we have in other places in Scripture this reference to sons of God being angels, all right? So maybe it was angels, and they decided to disobey God and go off and get married to humans, and then maybe that. Now, the fourth theory is this, and they were, and that's that they were fallen angels. So uh, it, sometime before the, the creation of the world, Satan uh, was an angel in heaven. Uh, he was the head worship leader in, in, in heaven, and he led a rebellion against God with about a third of the angels, and they fell from grace. They were kicked out of heaven. And, and so the thought is they weren't angels. They were, they were fallen angels. They were kind of from the dark side. Um, and so... And I, I'm going to take us to the New Testament just to unpack this one just a little bit. In the book of Jude, Jude is found right before the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. Uh, Jude was Jesus' brother, uh, and this is what he said in Jude 1, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share... So he was uh, about to write to them, very excited to talk about salvation and Jesus and, and, and all that was going on in the church. He says, 
I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So, so what you're saying is, I wanted to write to you about all the happy parts of following Jesus and all the good stuff going on there, but we've got a problem. There's some people who've been prophesied about beforehand who have snuck in among you, and they're corrupting you, and they're telling you that, that, uh, that, that, that it says they've perverted the grace of God, that you can... You can live any way you want. You can sin all you want because Jesus died on the cross. He's got to forgive your sins. So just, just go with it. And, and, and Jude's saying, that's a lie. Don't believe that. You know that's a lie, but I'm here to remind you that that's a lie. We don't use God's grace as a license for immorality. That's denying Christ. In verse 5, he goes on, he says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. In other words, what he's saying is don't use the, oh, we're the people of God excuse to continue to sin. God even saved the, the children of Israel who loved to say, hey, we're the children of God, but the ones who ultimately chose to disobey and walk away from God well, they paid, they paid for their, their disobedience and, and they inherited their own destruction. God was not playing that game. He's like, don't play that game. Don't use the, the God card. Don't, don't say, well, I got Jesus, so you know, my, my you know, illicit affair over here, my dishonesty or whatever else, it's all covered. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not, not how this works. And then in verse 6, it says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority. So now we're back to, we're back to our story. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These are the, the fallen angels, right? That they, they're, they're not in heaven. They abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, now this is interesting because now he begins to tie in a bit of what happened with the angels into Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. He specifically ties it to sexual immorality and perversion. You think having sex with fallen angels is Sexual immorality and perversion, say yes? Yeah, that, that would not be good. All right. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. It would seem, and please understand, I'm not making a hard and fast statement here because we've got more questions than answers, but it would seem that the angels somehow were involved in sexual immorality and perversion. Now he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that, obviously. Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So he, he's referring, he, again, he's taking the angels, 
and, and the fall of angels and, and, and these fallen angels, and he's tying it into the, the time of Noah, um, which we know was um, an immoral, wicked time, and sexually speaking as well. And then he says, if he, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, so now we're back to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the picture of immorality in the Old Testament, burning them to ashes, made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, now Lot lived in Sodom. He was a righteous man, it says, who was distressed and depra- by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteousness or in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. All right, bunch of stuff going on in here, but but one of the, the big themes is this idea of sexual immorality and perversion tied to Sodom and Gomorrah, tied to Lot, tied to the days of Noah, along with, in, in both passages, this idea of these fallen angels also seem to be involved. Now, I know at least one or two of you are thinking, but, you know, Jesus said angels can't marry, right? Didn't he say that? In Matthew 22, verse 30, they were asking about Jesus, about the end of times and the resurrection and what was going to happen. And Jesus said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And people will take that to mean, well, see, angels, angels can't be sexual beings. Well, it doesn't really say that. Uh, it, it, does it mean they can't or does it mean they don't or shouldn't? Does it mean that maybe they did before this point in history when God said, this just needs to stop? Again, there's a lot we don't know. I don't necessarily think that, that uh, removes that as a possibility. But can we be completely honest? I always want to try and be completely honest. This is less than clear. The Bible doesn't give us enough details to know for sure. And there's an important lesson that I want to stop and pull out right here, and that's this. There are times when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, where it is less than clear, where you just don't know for sure, where legitimate, God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Jesus-following disciples will look at the same text and go, well, I think it's this. And the other person will look at it and say, well, I think it's this. Now, there's a lot that we can know for sure. There's a lot that we uh, can agree on. So please don't hear me saying that we can't know what anything, nothing is true, or we can't know anything. Uh, We can, but every once in a while, you'll hit a topic like this. And let me encourage you, don't get hung up on the details of the things you cannot know. There will be questions this side of heaven that you're not going to have an answer to. And you're going to have to come to peace with that. So don't get hung up on the details of things you cannot know, and don't draw theological boundary lines or battle lines on these topics. You know, I mean, you can, you can believe that, that they're fallen angels, they're regular angels, you can believe that they're demon-possessed people, you can believe that they were, you know, the godly line of Seth, and we can all be brothers and sisters and, and, and live life together. That's great. 
That's great because it's less than clear. You know, the topics over the years that I've seen this happen around, uh, the, the idea of predestination versus free will, where Christians divide themselves over that topic, where it's less than clear in the Scripture, where God-fearing people see it from a different perspective. Uh, the, the end of days, you know, the idea of eschatology or the, the last days and, and the return of Christ and, and all of that. You know, there's 27 different theories <laughs> about that. It's okay if you subscribe to one or if you go, I don't know. That's kind of where I am. I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it's all right. Don't draw theological ba- boundary lines. Certainly as a church, we don't do that. You know, we, we, we focus and, and um, focus on the main things and agree on the main things. But, you know, it's in there for a reason. And so we do want to learn what principles, what learnings there are to learn from that passage, which is what we're doing here. Now, I know some of you are asking to yourself, so which one is it? Or at least which one do I think it is? Which really doesn't matter, but I'll share, share with you anyway, because I have a thought. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, I think it's the fallen angel theory, quite frankly. Um, the sons of God are angels in other places. Um, there's this idea that they're having some kind of supernatural giant offspring. So that wouldn't really jive with a human to human reproduction. So there's a case for supernatural copulation there. Um, the world had grown wicked except for Noah and his family. So I don't think it would be be God following angels that would be down here doing this intermixing with the, with those folks. So I, I, I think the case for fallen angels over God-following angels is pretty strong. But I don't know. I don't know. Now, we're about to see the destruction of all humanity, except for eight people. That's, you know, we, we, we read the story of Noah to, to kids. Actually, we usually read it out of a children's Bible because the real story is God wiped out all of humanity except for eight people, and, that's, and then we say goodnight um, and kiss them on the head and say goodnight. But, but, what if, and I think this is an argument for the, the fallen angel thing too, what if that was God's grace on our world and on us? What, what if, remember back in chapter 3 when uh, after the fall and, and God is telling Adam and Eve here, you know, you're going you're gonna to deal with this, you're going to deal with this, here's the consequence for you, serpent. And he says, he will... You will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. That was, I, I said at the time, that, that was a prophetic line that eventually someone, one of, the, one of the children of Eve, somebody in the line of Eve is going to come as a rescuer and crush Satan and what he had done. It was a prophecy. Now, what if Satan came out with a counter measure a counter idea like what if let's uh let's send some fallen angels in there and so pollute the human gene pool that a savior couldn't come through the line of eve i don't know is it possible it's possible it's a thought i wouldn't argue with you if you disagreed with me uh but it's a thought so that's what i think don't write any of that down because it's just what i think it's not what the bible says so i'm i'm going to continue um so what else we don't know for sure is we don't know for sure what Nephilim or Nephilim are. 
The, the word seems, there, there's a component of giant to it, and a lot of people refer to the Nephilim as the giants of the Old Testament. Uh, there's also a component of the idea of being fallen in there, um, which would make sense again, I think, if, if we were uh, looking at this, this kind of d- demonic mixed bloodline thing, for sure. Um, we see the word show up after the flood, interestingly enough, in the book of Numbers, when the children of Israel send the spies in, or Moses sends the spies into the promised land, and they come back, and these people were like giants, we're like grasshoppers next to them. They're called Nephilim. Now, I don't think they're the same Nephilim, quite frankly, because these ones are all wiped out at the flood. They, you know, they would have had to have uh, treaded water for hundreds of days. Didn't happen. We know that everything was wiped out. So, uh, same word, different creature. Eh, maybe again. Um, and then we we see uh, a lot of times people will say, "Well, Goliath was a Nephilim, right? David and Goliath. He was a giant." That word isn't used for Goliath. So we don't. Eat, I mean, you know, not exactly sure what was going to see more questions than answers. Um, so we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty sure they were big. There was a sense of fallenness to them. Um, so that's what we don't know for sure. So the question is then, what's the point of this passage? What's the point? <laughs> what can we learn from this? And, and for me, the big lesson is this. You get to choose between culture's way and God's way. You get to choose ultimately between following culture and following God. And how you choose will ultimately determine where you land. You know, God designed things. We talked about this for the last couple of weeks. He, there is a design. There is a way to do things. And guys, at this point in time, Man had chosen to work outside of the design, and actually we've always kind of moved in that direction. I, I, I think that, that sex with fallen angels is outside God's design. Polygamy is outside God's design. It's choosing to follow our lusts rather than God's plan is outside God's design, and they were a culture driven by that. We kind of are too, probably not as, as completely corrupted as they were, but we get to choose. Are we going to live for our culture? Are we going to live for God? You know, there are a lot of folks who are in dating relationships, and, and, uh, and yay, hopefully that's leading somewhere towards marriage. Uh, that's the idea. If you're dating for recreation and pleasure, then uh, that's not God's design. That's not how that's supposed to work. And when you get to that point where you're going to decide whether we're going to get married or are we not going to marry, actually, I think when you get to the point where we're going to date or we're not going to date, what's, what are you choosing? Are you choosing culture or are you choosing God? What, what's your criteria for dating someone? And if you're a follower of Jesus or if you desire to be a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you that at the top of your list as you're picking someone to date or marry, that, they, that at the top of your list of criteria is they're a committed follower of God. Because if they're not, they will lead you away from God. Or it will create a lot of pain in the relationship. 
In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Guys, I've been in church my whole life. I've watched as, as people who have, have chosen to marry because they didn't want to be alone, or they've chosen to marry someone, and they kind of ignored the fact that they weren't a believer, the person they married weren't a believer. So now they come to church while their spouse stays home, and there's so much heartbreak around that. That is so painful because you've got two people with a different compass on the inside pulling in different directions. And, and for those of you who are, are listening and you're like, yeah, I really, I mean, I want my spouse to become a, a Jesus follower, a God follower, and, and you're doing what you know to do. I mean, you come to church you, or, or you, you learn to follow Jesus and shine his light hoping to win your spouse, and that's great, guys. But there's so, if you're on the other side of that, there's so much there's so much frustration and pain with that too. And it all backs up because we chose, we chose not based on God's design for marriage, but based on our, de- our desire to, to uh, follow our, our, our love for beauty, our love for lust, whatever it is. If you want to follow Jesus, choose based on your values and your faith. The other person needs to be a follower of Christ. Is attraction unimportant? No, I think attraction is an important part of the mix, but it's not high on the list. Needs to be on the list, but not high on the list. This needs to be at the top of the list. Are they a follower of Christ? Because if they are, they're going to take you, and you're going to take one another in the right direction. Not only that, but you're not going to be fighting one another going, well, I think we should be generous. Well, you're not spending my money on that or whatever it is. Yeah. All right. Well, at one point, at one point, the, the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, when are you coming back? If you're leaving, when are you coming back? And this is what he says in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so now we're back to Noah, right? So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about that. They they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man of man. So what Jesus basically says is, look, when I come back, it's going to look a lot like Noah's day. So what did it look like in Noah's day? And there are some things that culture was defined by in Noah's day that I I just want to break down real quick. The first is this, um, Nephilim, Nephilim. They had these, these fallen heroes. They were men of renown, larger than life, larger-than-life uh, figures who, who certainly did not have it all together. They were, they were fallen heroes. You know, heroes of a culture are not necessarily good. Did you know that? Sometimes we think, well, heroes are always, always good. They're not always good. Think of, 
Uh, I like to think of, of Fat Thor from Endgame. You guys remember Fat Thor? I mean, he kind of lost his way completely. He's got just, he, just, he goes bad, but, but he was a hero of old, you know, whatever. You know, Hitler was a hero of the German people early on. He was restoring the glory of the, the German Reich, and, and, uh, and he was winning battle after battle, and the people loved him. Just because someone is a hero doesn't mean that they're good or that they're godly. And today, guys, our culture lifts up fallen heroes as role models. Just Google influencer or, or trendsetter, and there's, you're going to get a whole list of people who are broken and have nothing to do with godliness. Because our culture doesn't lift up godliness, does it? It doesn't lift up honesty and integrity. It doesn't lift up truth and sacrifice and purity. Our culture celebrates success, not character. And, you know, just to be clear, it's okay to look at the heroes of our culture and even like what they do. Maybe they're a musician or a... Or, um, you know, some kind of artist or, or leader or whatever, it's okay to look at them and admire what they do. Just know who they are. Just know that they're fallen heroes. I think our culture is, is defined by this, is defined by, by Nephilim. The second defining factor was sexual perversion. God had given humanity a blueprint for sex. It was, we see this in chapter 2 of Genesis. Man and woman, naked, unashamed, uh, completely intimate, nothing between them in the garden, man and wife. That was the design. That was the purity that was beautiful. And perversion is just simply taking something that is good and doing it differently. They decided they were going to do it their way. And at this point, we've got polygamy going on. We've got sex with fallen angels going on. We've got messed up families. We've got people hurting one another and destroying each other generation after generation after generation. We've got brokenness throughout the culture. You know, back in the, in the, the mid-1930s, um, there were a group of philosophers who came from Europe to the United States, specifically New York City, and specifically uh, set, up, um, set up a school called the Frankfurt School at Columbia University. They were cultural Marxists. Their goal was to bring this thing that was spreading throughout Europe, Marxism, uh, it, that was uh, in, you know, obviously in Russia and uh, the socialist uh, endeavors of Hitler and all of that. And they wanted to bring this new, new thought, this new society to the United States. And so they came and they set up this school at Columbia University called the Frankfurt School and uh, began to teach and infiltrate our culture with these ideas. And one of the things that they did is they took the teachings of Marx and the philosophies of Marx, and they fused them with the teachings of Sigmund Freud, who was a psychologist and a sexual pervert who, who advocated the grooming of children for, for sexual exploitation, who, who um, yeah, everything was about sex. And they set out to sexualize our culture. So in the 1960s, when, you know, the sexual revolution was in full swing, 
you know, that didn't just happen one day. People didn't wake up and go, oh, well, look what happened. No, that was seeded. And part of the reason it was seeded is because they understood if you can break a culture sexually, you can control that culture. Guys, today we have in our many of our schools curriculum that's being pushed globally called comprehensive sexual education that is grooming children to be sexually active and ultimately sexually broken in all kinds of ways. Because if you can control, if you can break a culture sexually, you can control that culture. Sexual perversion, if you look throughout history, is all over the place at the collapse of most civilizations. Let me point to Rome just as one of countless. All right, number three, rampant corruption. Genesis 6, verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. There's a little, lot of corruption going on here in this passage. The world had grown corrupt. Guys, we expect corruption these days. We expect our politicians to lie to us. We expect that our governments are bought and paid for by special interests. We know that people will look you in the face and lie and cheat and steal. Just open the, open the headlines, get online, look. This defines our culture today. And number four is this, growing violence. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. As a culture implodes, violence spreads. He said, I'm surely going to destroy both, both them and the earth. Take a minute and look up some crime rates. You will see. Violence spreads. So we've got fallen heroes, sexual perversion, rampant corruption, growing violence. Is any of this sounding familiar? I, I'm not one to, to put my finger on the calendar and go, well, Jesus is coming back here. I don't know. But boy, this is sounding like the days of Noah to me. You know, one of the things that I believe God does here in this passage is that he gives a deadline for his grace. God's grace is given a deadline. In verse 3, it says this, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with or remain with humans forever, for they are mortal or corrupt their days will be 120 years. Now, some scholars believe that this is, it's at this point that God limits the human lifespan to 120 years. That, you know, before that, the average, average lifespan was somewhere around 900 years or something like that. And now he limits it to 120 years. You're not, not going to live past that point. Um, but there are other, other scholars that believe that actually what God was doing here was 120 years before the flood, he's saying, here's the deadline. Like, he's extending grace to the people of earth, saying, you need to turn back to me. And I'm giving you, and I'm going to count to 120. How many, how many parents have counted to 100? I, I, I think I'm being gracious to count to three, right? God's like, I'm going to give you to 120. Guys, the reality of our lives is that we all have a deadline, every one of us. When we get to that point where we take our last breath and you don't know when that's going to be, that is your deadline. 
As a pastor, I have done lots of funerals over the years where I stand at the casket or the, the urn and, uh, and, 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 and talk about this person. And if they're a follower of Jesus, I get to say, then they're in a better place. A lot of times people will say that about anybody. It's not necessarily true about anybody. It's true about the people who have said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be a God follower, not a sin wallower. There's a deadline, and none of us know when it will be. It could be the moment you walk out in the street today. I don't know. But God offers grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, second chance upon second chance. But we're all going to get to a deadline, and what we've decided then will decide where we are with God for all eternity. You've been given a deadline. Now, what happens next has been spun as some people will say, well, he's a God of wrath and judgment and hate and all this stuff because he wipes out the whole population except for eight people. But I, again, I see it as God being a God of mercy and second chances. He, he, he gives us, he gave them a long runway. You have a deadline. Turn to me. Please turn back to me. And today, he does the same thing. He gives each one of us a deadline. And he says, today, the only way you're going to hell is over my son's dead body. And you can choose to reject him. You can choose to step over him on your way to hell. But please don't. He offers you life. As long as you're still alive, it's not too late for you to choose. And that brings me to the choice. And really, I think the point of this entire passage we get to choose. We get to choose the way of culture or the way of God. We can choose the way of culture and cause God great grief and pain. We can follow our hearts and our desires and what we want and try and orchestrate and, and, and uh, make our life everything we, we think we want it to be, and you'll get so many, things wrong, so many things wrong along the way and cause God so much regret. In verse 6 it says the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. For 1,600 years he's been watching people destroy each other, use each other, break each other, lie, steal, cheat, abuse, take what they want at the expense of one another. And at this point, he's grieved to the point that he's like, I can't watch this anymore. I'm going to count to 120. And he does. We can choose the way of culture, or we can choose the way of obedience, the way of God. In verse 9, we see it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah was different. Noah was different. He obeyed God. And it says he walked with God. He not only chose to obey God, but he had a relationship with God. So you walk with people 
who you love. You walk with people. Like the best conversations that I have had are on walks with people. The best conversations with God I have are literally on walks with God where I'm out walking and we're, and we're talking and there's this, this intimacy and this connection. Noah did both. He followed God, he obeyed God, but he had a relationship with God as well. And when we choose obedience, guys, we choose to be different. We choose to be distinctively awesome. We choose to be people of forgiveness and generosity and kindness and so many other good things that we know somewhere deep inside, that's who we want to be. And when we choose to walk with God, we choose friendship with him, intimacy, love, the relationship we were created for. You know, last week I, I said, choose this day who you will serve. That was kind of the end of the message. And this week, this week I'm going to say something very similar, and I want you to spend some time thinking about this. Choose this day how you will live, because how you choose determines where Ultimately, you end up with God or not. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the God of mercy and grace. Lord, that, that your heart is that we would not just follow you, but we would treat one another with grace and kindness and love, that we would reflect your goodness. God, thank you that you are good, and thanks for your help in just processing all that we've read today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.